Rockheads, this is Carl with an update on Music to Code By. On January 4th, 2016, I released the 11th Music to Code By track, Gold. That's right, there are now 11 25-minute tracks, including the original three. And you can download them all in one big zip file for less than 50 bucks at mtcb.poit.com. Dotnet Rocks, episode 1277, with guest Jeremy Fake. Recorded Thursday, March 24th, 2016. Hey, guess what? It's Dotnet Rocks, and we're at Build. How are you, man? Uh, I'm at Build, too, so I must be great. I'm at build in spirit anyway. I'm yeah. actually in the studio and it's last week. Yeah. No, this is the funny truth about, you know, the old time shifting thing. I mean, we are at a podcasting space at build and we are making shows with a bunch of fellow podcasters, but this is not one of them. Right. One of the benefits of our job is that we get to talk to people at Microsoft about things that are happening at build before they actually happen. So we got to shut up about that in our regular life. <laughs> it sucks you know when you can't mm. you can't have lunch with friends and they say what's new and you go nothing nothing no. <laughs> many many ndas that's us many ndas yeah. yep anyway jeremy fake is here we're going to be talking all about office 365 and uh microsoft graph and all sorts of goodness uh announced here recently but first we have this little matter of a thing we call better know a framework awesome roll that crazy music <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, this came across my desk via Twitter, and uh, it's called 2020 Storage, and you can get it at 2020.pwop.me, which is the 2020 is for the 2020 storage, not for show 2020. Yeah, what are we going to do when we get to 2020? You've already used up the code. <laughs> I know, and people look at me like, what the heck is this? <laughs> But um, it's only a thousand shows from now. What? Right. So 2020 storage is uh, sort of the least common denominator of functionality between the supported providers to build a cross cloud storage solution. Oh, interesting. And the currently supported providers are Azure Blob Storage, Amazon S3, Google Cloud Storage, and your local file system. Nice. Which, yeah. So with one... Uh, interface, you can uh, access blobs in all of these platforms, which is really cool if you have a sort of a multi-provider scenario, which a lot of people do have yeah, these yeah. hybrid solutions, not just for failover, but for um, for region and functionality and all of that stuff. So, Yeah, this is becoming a hot thing, right? Is being able to work across the, uh, the different clouds with little stress. Yeah, exactly. And it, And even though we've spent, you know, I don't know, nearly 10 years saying, you know, the whole right once run everywhere thing is is really hard to do. And it's kind of becoming a myth. And every time we try it, something else happens. Seems like we're sort of getting back there, isn't it? It's, it's coming back around again. And and we're, we're trying to see if this time it's different. Yep. So this show, as you'll hear uh, when Jeremy comes in, is all about sort of consolidation and uh, making your life easier as well. So, it's going to be a good show. Anyway, 2020.pwop.me will get you to 2020 storage. Love it. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1032, which we did back in 2014 with Dan Willeen. We were talking about the Office 365 APIs. Mm -hmm. And this was back in the pre-release times, and Dan was part of the experimentation process, and he was just sort of talking through what he'd done so far and put all the projects up on GitHub. And we did get a comment from this, and obviously this is from a while ago now. This is Mark Howard, who said, Hi, I'm Mark Howard, and I just put code into production that automates populating Word and Excel via Calm. Hey, it's our old friend Calm. <laughs> I remember that. That's a, it's nice to know it was still going on. It's part of a system that allows users to add their own document templates and specify how they should be populated. I know there are XML document alternatives, yeah. but the COM API is richer from what I can tell. 
I'm still working on making it scale well. Luckily, I only have a few users so far, but thanks for the idea of a service that ends rogue Word and Excel processes, which reminds me, you know, we talked about this, that show. I mean, this is 2014 yeah. as a while ago, about how when you did all this calm stuff, especially on servers, you'd light up these instances of Excel and they wouldn't get cleaned up, right? They'd just yeah. sort of propagate. Well, yeah, there was a there was a problem with the apartment threading model and IIS, essentially. So, yeah. two products made by the same company that didn't play well together. Who would have thunk it? Yeah. So Mark goes on to say, I dig Office 365. However, my organization still uses Office 2007. Dun, dun, dun. Most of our employees are over 45 and do not take change too well. I'm Mm. over 45. You're over 45. I I live for change. Yeah. Thinking about it, while I built a sophisticated document templating platform, I will probably be the only user of it which is fine by me. Mm. Yeah, at least somebody gets to use it and you could appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Dan, for helping pave the way of future office development. Microsoft has really been impressive lately with the speed that they're pushing out new releases. Absolutely. And and yeah. only more of this is coming, Mark. So hang on to your hat. And uh, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of the social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. Comment there. We read it on the show. We'll send you a mug. Absolutely. And by all means, follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. And send us a tweet. We play bocce with him. All right, now let's introduce uh, Jeremy Thigg. We've had him on the show before, but Jeremy is a technical product manager at Microsoft in the team responsible for the developer story for Office 365 development. Previously, he worked at Avpoint Incorporated, a large ISV, as the chief architect shipping two apps to the Office store. He's been heavily involved in the SharePoint community since 2006 and was awarded the SharePoint MVP award four years in a row before retiring the title to move to Microsoft. You can hear him weekly interviewing people on the Office 365 developer podcast and catch him on Twitter at jthake. That's T-H-A-K-E. Welcome back, Jeremy. Thanks, man. It's good to hear from you again. Good to hear from you. You've got some new stuff up your sleeve. Wow. Look at this stuff. It's pretty exciting, actually. It seems like every six months we've kind of stocking up a bunch of things that we can share on, whether it's Build or Ignite or in the past it's been the TechEd Europe's and TechEd North Americas. And kind of getting that rhythm of six months, kind of bang, here's everything we're announcing is is stressful, to say the least. But yeah. um, it's really exciting to see it all come out at once and kind of keep just continuing improving that story. So what I like about this, what we're going to talk about is it's very developer friendly. And you've just basically created a single endpoint with REST APIs for everything we can do with Microsoft. And am I exaggerating when I say that? The the end goal is everything within Microsoft, and it is called the Microsoft Graph for for that reason, rather than being something Office centric. Uh, so graph.microsoft.com is the endpoint that you would hit with REST or use our SDKs to grab at. Uh, for now, like Office Division is the pilot for that. So when you think about Office as a service in Office 365, whether it's SharePoint, whether it's OneDrive for Business, whether it's everything that's in Outlook, Mail, Calendar, Contacts, Tasks, uh, whether it's the Delve experience in Office 365 for things like trending around documents and people I work with, all of those endpoints are now available on the Microsoft Graph, which is really cool because it's one authentication flow and then you know have at it with, with REST calls. And, you know, finding people is a sort of a, a theme that I see, not just, you know, my manager and the users and groups and people that are related to me, but uh, also people like I'm working with and, and people that are relevant to a particular project. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of discoverability in here for when it comes to just people. Yeah, and I think the the power of that is has been we've used it a lot in our own products within the service. So, for instance, when you're in Delve or you're in OneDrive now, you start to see things like not just recent documents that you've worked on, but also recent documents that your colleagues or peers have worked on as, uh, in, within your team and um, your direct reports. And it allows you to kind of discover information you wouldn't have been able to discover very easily in the past. But the beauty there is is that if you've got your own mobile application or you've built your own web application, whether it's a SaaS product or it's an internal thing as an enterprise developer you're building for your company, mm. 
you now can also get that information and leverage it within your file pickers and uh, file open type experiences. And if you're building your own portals, listing all that information on there as well. Yeah. So it kind of gives the third-party developer the same access that our first-party developers have internally at Microsoft. All right. I fear we're losing some people, but so I'd like us to back up a little bit and just give us a little elevator pitch about this and, and maybe a little of the history because this isn't a new product, but you've sort of opened it up. So, yeah, I'll just throw it over to you for that. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, Office 365 has is, is historically been a bunch of on-premises products, whether it be SharePoint Server, Exchange Server, or link server for kind of the IM and voice. And then evolving that technology over a period of about six to eight years now, of making it available as a basically as a, a SaaS service with inside what was originally called Business Productivity Online Services, BPOS, to Office 365. And, and so you pay on a subscription basis rather than kind of on a cow license basis. And yeah. essentially, there's no setup anywhere. You just kind of go in and put in your registration details and you have this environment that you can start creating users with inside your company, uh, much like any other SaaS service. But really the, the story there with Office 365, having now all those different products living there in the cloud is that as developers, whereas before, like you were saying in the opening of the show, you would kind of drop sneaky DLLs on the SharePoint server mm. and drop DLLs on the Exchange server, we now have kind of very open supported API service that allows you to kind of talk to those products that are running in the cloud in a, in a very secure and manageable way. Yeah. And that's great. And, and the APIs is the story here. I'm right. I mean, just with that one endpoint with, with a single O data authorization, you can just go anywhere. Yeah. Like historically um, I lived in a land of SharePoint development as a consultant and obviously as a, a partner as well, building product and we'd have a different SDK, a different auth flow. The rest endpoints would look extremely different in response type than when I looked and had a look at what Exchange Server did or what Link Server did. And that's just the nature of Microsoft shipping the org chart and living in different buildings on Redmond campus right. and, and not really talking to each other in right. all the same. Um, and so over time, what happened was we got that feedback loud and clear from partners as they started to try and integrate all of our different products that this was just too hard for developers to kind of know the nuances of the SharePoint API compared to the Exchange API compared to Link. And then obviously then other, other products that we're introducing as well. And so the API council was formed at Microsoft to start graph.microsoft.com to make sure that there was just one approach to authentication using Azure AD. Uh, for organizational auth, and then from a Microsoft account perspective for personal auth. So when you're looking at Outlook.com to connecting to mail calendar contacts for my Hotmail or my Outlook type accounts. Yeah. Um, and once you've got the auth, then the REST API um, has to follow an OData 4 format and all the response types and the way you request things, whether it be kind of the way you do paging on an API or how you do querying and filtering is is a standardized approach rather than whatever the particular product team in a particular building in Redmond thought was the coolest thing at the time. Like we've enforced the standard across all of the products. So once you've learned it once, it's very, very easy to kind of go and jump and get data from other things in there as well. So, I mean, this beats the heck out of installing Excel on your server. Yes, oh, it does. Yeah. Yeah, and actually one of the newest services that we, we announced in preview at the Connect event, which was an online virtual event that Scott uh, Guthrie headed up in uh, kind of the November timeframes last year, but um, is available now um, for developers to start using, is the Excel REST API. Mm -hmm. So uh, where before you would have installed Excel on your web server and wanted to kind of manipulate Excel documents by either, there's two real approaches. You either use something like Excel services that lived in the SharePoint server world, which meant you need to have SharePoint installed to do this kind of uh, organ manipulation of Excel documents, or you downloaded the Excel file and used OpenXML SDK to kind of blast that file open, make some edits, and then re-upload the document up to the server. With the Excel REST API now, as long as the Excel document lives in uh, OneDrive for Business or a SharePoint library, you can actually manipulate the contents of the document just using a REST API. So I can go in and add rows to a sheet. I can go in there and delete rows from a sheet. I can edit rows in a sheet. I can create new sheets. I can kind of do a bunch of different processing tasks that don't require you to bring the whole document down to then kind of change it and then push the whole document up. 
Yeah. And the nice part about it is, is that service that you're running, whether it's a web application, a mobile application, or maybe it's a long running process, as it's interacting with your Excel file, it's actually looking like it's a co-author. So I can have Excel online open in my browser looking at that, that sheet. And as my long running service starts adding rows, I can see those things appearing just like I would if me, me and you two were in the Excel sheet editing yeah. um, information as well. So it, it's really been thought up well. And there's some great scenarios that we um, demo in the overview session, which is uh, going to be streamed live as well on, on Thursday, which is uh, essentially the, this notion of, um, the uh, Zapier, which is the kind of if then else, uh, right. if then it's a cause and effect kind of when this happens, do this. Right. API, um, and yeah. so one of the scenarios we're using is PayPal has a zap, as they call it, uh, that allows you that when a payment comes through on PayPal, uh, that it can trigger an action. And so uh, this zap from a PayPal account will actually take that information and inject it directly into an Excel sheet for reporting purposes. So in the past, that may have probably been for an accounting firm, a manual task that happens overnight or some crazy batch process that downloads a CSV from PayPal and then processes that CSV. Now in real time via these kind of uh, these kind of online services, we can kind of integrate with those things very, very easily. What identity is the programmatic instance going to use to for the co-authorship on the Excel? Like, do you actually use a, a logging credential or is it a special account? Could I have more than one running? You could tell the difference between them? Yeah, good question. So essentially, in the case of a mobile app or a website that's running, it's going to use the user's identity. Right. Uh, and the user, when he first logs into that web application, uh, it'll get prompted for a consent to say that this web application, this mobile application is going to require access to OneDrive for Business and will use the Excel REST API to manipulate those spreadsheets. Using and your identity. It, so it's correct. your credentials. Yeah. Mm. Right. So the user consents that. And essentially what that means is that whenever any writes happen to the Excel file, it will show up as me as that user. Right. Now, there is this this notion of a, internally we call it like a daemon account or an app-only token, which essentially means that the app can have its own unique identifier. And for those app-only tokens, there's a little bit more setup, um, and essentially the administrator of the Office 365 tenant is the only person who can approve a, a, an app to have that kind of level. And in that case, the permissions would actually show up that that particular app, like Jeremy's core Excel updating app, would actually show up as the author uh, in the OneDrive for Business if you started looking at the version history of the Excel sheet. Right. Well, and, and that's cool. But, but, and if we chose to have a completely autonomous process, we could give it its own Active Directory account and th then it would appear as them? Uh, yeah. I mean, yes, you can do the traditional like service account approach where I yeah. can go and create hmm. in Azure AD and, and consent with that person and then store that token and persist it somewhere, the consent token essentially. Right. And then reuse that token to call the Excel API. There are some tricks to it because um, obviously those tokens do expire. And um, if, you've, if you're familiar with Azure AD authentication, uh, that, that kind of all, all applies for this because it is just using um, Azure AD. Um, the Azure AD team have actually have this uh, notion of we, we've been using V1 authentication for a while now. And the V2 auth model has been in preview for a little bit. Um, and it's it's uh, it was GA'd uh, very recently, and there's SDA SDKs coming uh, will allow you to kind of do it a lot easier. The kind of this dance of grabbing the tokens and refreshing the tokens and so forth. Uh, and and the beauty of the V2 auth endpoint over the V1 auth endpoint is that you can just you can actually use it to get at uh, not just the work and school identity of me as a user, but also that personal user too, uh, with that one token. So, you know, like I can go to graph.microsoft.com slash v1 slash me slash mail. And depending on whether I log in with my work and school account, i.e. my Office 365 account, mm -hmm. or whether I will log in with my personal account, I'll get the mail of either my Microsoft employee inbox or my personal Hotmail inbox, which is actually full of crappy junk mail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we got to talk about webhooks. This really intrigued me. And I, I think we have talked about them before, but... These are uh, sort of like callbacks that you don't you don't have to make a call to get a callback. So I think of it as sort of like a an open socket or a signal R kind of uh, uh, deal. Is that what we're talking about? And how do they how do they fit into the puzzle? 
Yeah, I, I, I could give full credit to the engineering team for kind of using an open standard approach to doing notifications on an API rather than kind of reinventing the wheel and coming up with your own standard. Um, Webhooks is a standardized way of kind of essentially going, I would like to listen to my inbox or this folder within my inbox within my email or maybe this folder within my OneDrive for business or OneDrive consumer folder. Mm. Uh, and then and then once one of the event happens on those objects that I've kind of subscribed to, I'll get a call back to my web API that allows me to get that context of what's happened and then make and then do something on top of that. So for instance, if so you're cool. a mobile app that maybe have saved a document, an invoice to a OneDrive for business and then the user goes into OneDrive or it goes to Word and opens that invoice and makes a change, your service can actually be notified of that and maybe it puts a notification in your mobile application or your web application to say that there's an invoice that's been edited on your on your system. So it allows you to kind of not have to keep checking that things have been touched or updated in the service and be notified when those things happen. So was I right? Is that a SignalR thing? Um, under the covers, the way it's been built, I'm not sure whether it is SignalR from a Socket's perspective. It's been implemented to be standardized on webhooks. I'd be interested to, this is a good question, whether the engineers actually did use SignalR to actually implement webhooks right in the back end. Yeah, it is cool, though. You know what you guys are doing? It, it, it just dawns on me. You're reinventing the operating system to just put the web in between everything that an operating system does. You know, I think about file notification APIs in Win32, right? That's what you do. You say, I want to know when this directory changes. You know, it's a notification. It's something you subscribe to. But you guys are essentially just taking these core concepts. And and uh, I mean, if, if you think about it, that's what Azure is, isn't it? Right. And, and that's the interesting part with all of this is that uh, the story with Azure is is really unified, which is great. So if you're building mobile applications or you're building websites that live in, in Azure, it's really, really simple to connect into the webhooks or call these APIs. But again, we have SDKs available for Android and iOS, but we also have them available for things like PHP and Ruby in the in the short term as well, which is mm-hmm. going to kind of unlock a lot of developers that don't want to play on our stack, but have these web skills that still want to be able to play with the REST APIs that we provide. Now, that being said, I, I think I have a complaint because I Microsoft Graph makes total sense, that name, what it's about, and so forth. But there's also Office Graph. Uh, that means I have to drink. You know, we oh, have an internal. No. I, yeah. I don't have my ticket at my desk today, but I, it's probably because I've run out because I always get asked this question. Um, <laughs> what the heck are you guys doing? What have you yeah, done? The Office Graph or the Microsoft Graph? I, um, I'll put my hand up and say that it had nothing to do with me. Uh, I was not in those meetings. If I had been, I probably would have been fired for saying how ridiculous this oh, was. Wow. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the shipping your org chart is a Microsoft thing, right? You can't keep everyone on, on towing on the, the party line. But um, right. essentially what happened was uh, the, the Office Graph is what powers Delve, which is the product that when you're in Office 365, it gives you those card-type layout of, you know, your manager is working on this document now and you have permissions to it, so you might want to check him out. Or uh, these are the documents you've recently collaborated on with the rest of your team. And so it, it takes signals from a bunch of different products, whether it's Outlook, whether it's OneDrive, SharePoint. Uh, it does it with Link, uh, sorry, Skype at the moment, and also with Yammer. And in the future, you'll be able to, as a vendor, push your own signals in. So last build conference, and I think we shot a little bit early on this, was with the uh, Salesforce scenario, we had the Salesforce system have a new customer created and it pushed a signal into the office graph. And so then a card showed up on the Delve interface that says, you know, your manager just created a new customer. So it kind of is like a unified way of seeing what's going on in your organization. And right now we control all the signals going into it. Uh, In the future, you'll be able to have your own into it. And so we had this notion of the office graph. Now another team in Microsoft uh, originally, we called this the Office 365 Unified APIs. Uh, and then obviously, as I mentioned earlier on, this isn't just going to be for Office. The Microsoft Graph, as we know it now, and graph.microsoft.com, will include other services, whether it be Xbox, whether it will be uh, Microsoft Health Data. All this will go through graph.microsoft.com. And, and so that's why we've called it the Microsoft Graph. 
So obviously we know that causes some confusion because the Office graph lives on the Microsoft graph and there is some things in the pipeline based on feedback that clearly when I heard about that decision, it was like, this is not going to land well uh, and we will be doing some stuff to kind of realign that and make that a lot clearer. But the Office graph is extremely powerful and um, we've been seeing a lot of cool things happen just with consuming the graph. But personally, I'm really excited to see what happens when we can start getting partners to push on the graph. I mean, it's not a bad, it's the right name. It's literally is the graph of data within your organization. That's a logical name. It's just from a product perspective, you're like, uh oh. Yeah, there's a, there's been a lot of internal debate. And I think that's been the funny bit working at Microsoft now for two years is that from the outside, sometimes I know you guys are in the inner circle with discussing with people, but from Mm. the outside, how does that happen? But, you know, when you look at the average calendar of a Microsoft employee and see how many meetings are in and how many we can't. Things things get through, and you can't be in every meeting on every every decision. And uh, I think the best that we do listen and we do adjust, which is you know good. Otherwise, it would make our lives very insane. The more you know about the scale of the organization and all those sorts of problems, the more you start saying, "Why does this not happen more?" Hmm. Yeah, it, yeah. Actually, that is very true. Especially now that we've moved to this cadence, like where Azure is shipping. Every two months, we're shipping stuff into the service every three months. Wow. There's decisions being made with a, without these kind of traditional PowerPoint presentations that go up to the leadership team that take three to four months to build. And, you know, things are happening a lot more reactionary now. And it's incredible that the ship still kind of pushes forward. And you can see, you know, there are some slips every now and again, but um, it's been pretty amazing to see how quickly we were able to move on this stuff. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? I must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to ask the question, if you're alone in the woods and see a spider web built with a Hasbro toy from the 60s, would that be a spirograph? Oh, no. Just say no. (laughs) Too funny. Spirograph, 1965. It's a long time ago, man. Invented by Dennis Fisher in the UK. Yeah. Endless hours of fun when I was a kid. Actually, it's time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. Well, okay, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Kevin Obo. Congratulations, Kevin. Golf clap yeah. for you, sir. Sorry, Kevin, if I mispronounced your name, but it's spelled like the instrument, so that's what I'm going with, Oboe. Nothing wrong with a double read. Yeah, and Kevin just won the uh, D Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from Developer Express. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. And every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And Jeremy, now it's your turn. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? You know, it's tough. I can't even remember what I answered last time, but uh, things changed. I uh, I was looking at the the kind of the HoloLens developer kit, thinking oh, I've got plenty of time where I can just go and buy that and start building out some cool experiences. But um, I the reality of it is, I know I don't have time to dev on other stacks right now to do that type of thing. So I think they would just sit there collecting dust until I had some cool scenarios I could actually deploy on it. Someone else had built, but um, I would really like a nice big. Uh, 120 inch uh, television. I was at a Ferrari garage actually in Seattle for the uh, debut or the the first race of the season for the Formula One, and uh, they had a, a big, big, massive 120 inch screen just sitting there with a massive stereo system, and mm. that would look that would look great in my man cave. So I think that's I don't know whether I'd be able to get that for five grand. I'm, I'm thinking a little more. bit more. I'm I'm just taking yeah. a peek here. Vizio's 120 inch reference 4K TV, one hundred thirty thousand dollars. 
Wow, okay, that's a Vizio one. Usually they're the cheap one. <laughs> they're supposed to be the cheap ones, right? I bet you that looks like Sony prices. Yeah, so maybe the five grand wouldn't stretch that far. I get a few pixels. I could I could get a, a 40-inch section of the 120. <laughs> <laughs> so so you, you make a down payment on your TV. <laughs> But this, the tragic bit is, is that we all go through this process of walking into those big stores and buying like a, a 60 inch TV for five grand, knowing full well that in two years they're going to be worth like a grand at best. Well, the other thing is your room is never as big as the box store you're in when you bought the TV, right? Like, I think right sizing a TV is not a small problem. Yeah, I've looked at projectors as well. I bought a house here in Redmond and finally decided I'm, I'm here to stay. I can put up with the rain. And um, they had a projector kind of all mounted, but it was a really old like VGA one. And I turned it on and the quality was just so bad that I was no, I, I'll leave it for now and just put a flat screen in there. But uh, apparently you can get these uh, projectors that are actually pretty good high def that work fine in, in, a, in a man cave type environment. Oh, sure. As, uh, yeah. For a 1080p projector, no problem. But the 4K projectors, you can't get one of those for five grand either, right? Like, they're, they're a lot of money. Something, something tells me you've investigated this a little bit. <laughs> well, I had a little old flood in the basement back in November, and so <laughs> we're going to be rebuilding that room. And, uh, yeah, it looks like we're going with about a 60-inch. That's about right size for the room. But I definitely All checked right. everything. Yeah. You know, the four the 4K projectors, actually, here's one. The JVC's down to about $4,000. But you, if you want to, you can drop thirty grand on a 4K projector, no problem. Wow. Yeah, serious money. It's like, or I could buy a car. All right, we, we got to get back into this because I think we're only just scratching the surface of all the things you guys are working on here. You know, there's, there's so much going on. Did I hear that uh, Skype for Business is now going to have a full API as well? Yeah, it's been great, actually. We previewed some Skype stuff back at the last build uh, yeah. last year. Um, and what we're actually putting generally available now is that web SDK. So I think the demo we did at build was around a partner called do.com, which builds a an Outlook add-in that lives inside meeting invites where you can create agendas and notes that run when you're in the meeting. But they added the ability to kind of, from the Outlook add-in, launch a web uh, experience that it kind of has context of the partner do.com built into it and so there's some really neat scenarios that kind of that's brought up around a live md for instance which is a partner in the medical space where a doctor can have all the patient notes up beside this embedded in the web page the skype conversation that's going on right uh we're, we've just open sourced uh, as an example an angular uh, web application spa that essentially uses the Skype Word SDK to have uh, chat windows where you can go and do Skype chats inside your application using that API, uh, which is pretty cool. So there's a bunch of stuff that they've done to really kind of push uh, embedding the Skype experience directly into the web application. And then in addition to that, something that's actually been newly announced to build uh, this week is this notion of uh, the Skype for Business app SDK, which is all about how you use Skype within your uh, your native applications on whether it's Android, iOS, or Windows Windows Phone. So I can kind of go away and have a, an iOS experience where I've built all of my app inside of a native kind of Objective-C uh C type application, but have Skype chat or even Skype video or voice calls directly in my application without having to like hop out of that app to jump over to Skype to take the call. I can have the call directly natively in my, my mobile application, which is really neat. So there's a lot of scenarios there that we see not just on kind of the phone, but also on the Android tablets and iPads as well, where you can start integrating with Skype for Business in that way as well. Integration is a key part of what you guys are doing here and not just with your own services like Skype, but uh, a whole bunch of third party apps and, and, um, environments. And, and this is, it's just another way that Microsoft has changed, isn't it? Yeah, I think the the notion that we're being a lot more open uh, with partners and telling stories of partners and making it almost like a, a first-party citizen to say, this actually makes sense to tie this with this particular partner to go out the door as a product, mm. rather than kind of being almost a little bit elitist and saying, our product rocks as it stands, vanilla, just buy our stuff. And, and I think that's really helping us. Like I think 
you know, there's great examples of, say, for instance, the SharePoint ecosystem and the fact that, yeah, SharePoint was a strong product, but most people used a variety of different products from the, the partner community to make it a product that was usable for their customer scenarios that they had. And I think Microsoft's learned that ecosystems really help products and the extensibility story around every single product that we, we have enriches it and makes it better for our customers. So when are we going to see .NET inside of Office? Yeah, see, that was an interesting one. So, you know, we, we, you, know you, st- you open the show with com add-ins and the fact that traditionally .NET is something that would have been used um, to write these kind of extension points with inside of Outlook Word, PowerPoint, Excel, yeah. on Office 2007, 2003, XP. Alt F12, baby. Right, that, that's how you build yep. things. Uh, but then, you know, Sachin Azala came on as CEO and immediately we announced iPad on the office and everyone dropped the mic and was like, wow, you know, I can't believe Microsoft are doing this. Mm. And we've had huge success uh, with Office on the iPad and yeah. Apple announcing the smaller form factor iPad, which means that you get Office for free on that iPad Pro now. Whereas if you get the full-blown, full-size iPad Pro, you need to purchase the Office 365 license. I think that's even showing showing Apple's hands as a tipping point of how they realize that customers want to ha- run Office on an iPad uh, device such as the Pro uh, with the free version. And we've seen that. The usage is very, very high. And it's not just for reading files. It's for all sorts of things on, on the iPad, whether it's kind of editing, inking within each of those, those different um, Office app versions. But what that meant was, as we introduced Office on the iPad, the iPhone, uh, Android, and we obviously we have it on Windows 10 natively with UWP, is that we can't really run .NET on each of those different platforms. And so the engineering teams, you know, three years ago now, when we we shipped Office 2013, released this notion of the Office Add-in model, which is a web-based model. So essentially, everything is written as HTML and JavaScript. You host the files on a server wherever you choose. And then you just have this XML manifest file that you register in our, in our catalog that then our Office clients are aware of. And that instructs the Office client to say, okay, uh, there's going to be a button in the ribbon in Word here. And when I click it, it's going to go and execute this particular JavaScript that lives and is hosted on a web server that is available to that that operating system that's running the Office client. Mm. And so what that meant is is that we can now write that JavaScript code and HTML code once, but it'll work across Office uh, wherever the platform is, whether it's on Win32, the browser version of Office, Office Online, mm-hmm. uh, Mac as well, iOS uh, and, and Android, and obviously the native UWP on Win10. And it, it's been pretty amazing to see how quickly our engineering teams have added that ability for support for Office add-ins across those things. We're not quite yet there yet, but at Build, we announced that uh, Mac gets support for add-ins across Outlook, Word, PowerPoint, Excel wow, with yeah. that new version of Office, which, to be honest, I, I love how fast Outlook is on the Mac uh, compared to Windows 10 in, in, in for my kind of day-to-day work. And hmm. I use my Mac at home, and I, I, I use Windows 10 at work, obviously. And um, it's great to see that we have parity with Office on all of these platforms and not just kind of, you know, us focusing straight on Win32. Yeah, it's it's amazing. The uh, I didn't know that about Office on the Mac, but it kind of makes sense because it's always run a little faster, maybe because um, Office on Windows is maybe sort of more embedded in the operating system. You know, it, it relies more on uh, the stuff that the OS um, has going for it, where as maybe the, the Mac version doesn't have all those comma objects and things. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, obviously, we've added VBA support, in actual fact, to the Mac version of Office because we had a huge fan base that used VBA and mm. wanted to have that support. So that's us kind of not saying, look, we're going to go roll VBA support out to every single version of Office that exists on every different platform, but we've adhered to that desktop scenario. Uh, but if you want to build extensibility points inside of Office, really this Office add-in model is the way to go. Um, and the nice part about it is is that you, you don't have to actually change any of the code for it to work across those platforms. Uh, literally, as we unlock things on Android and, and onto the UWP on Windows 10, those add-ins just will work because essentially it's just either iframed or it's silently calling the JavaScript functions. Mm. And then JavaScript, we're just using Office JS libraries, which we're versioning. So some of the other updates this week 
Uh, we've incremented again on Word and Excel to 1.2 version of Office JS. Yeah. And there's a bunch of new features we've added around kind of document uh, manipulation, such as the ability in actually in PowerPoint, for instance, that you can now insert images into a slide through uh, JavaScript commands. And mm. we had some partners that have built kind of ClipArt-esque task pane applications where you can go search for images in there repository of images and with one click of a button inject it into the slide and then use the new kind of design managers that are available in PowerPoint 2016. Wow. So basically, if I can paraphrase here for people who are just sort of following along and maybe not grasping the big picture, it looks like all you really have to do is make your solution for Office 365 and you can support that solution on every platform. And not just on every platform, but integrated with a whole bunch of different apps. Is is that fair to say? Yeah, and actually, probably more more than just Office three six five. When we talk about Office three six five, we talk about our service running in the cloud. Right. But we're very aware that we had a ton of customers that aren't you know bid into the cloud yet, and still have some time before they're convinced to move up. And so this actually works in Office twenty thirteen client and Office twenty sixteen client. Even if you are not in Office 365, um, you can deploy those things by other means, whether it's um, a network share, you put the manifest file, and then mm. the Office client is aware of that network share based on group policy deployment. But we do make it a lot easier with this brand new feature we announced, which is called the, the Office Add-in Deployment Manager that's built into the Office 365 experience that allows me centrally as an IT person to go, I want this particular Office Add-in to be deployed directly to everybody that's in this HR Active Directory group. And hmm. what's cool is when they're even if they've got the Word application open in Win32, they'll actually get a notification in the bottom right to say that uh, the, the organization has just deployed this new add-in to you. Now, remember the days that you had to go and have an EXE that had to be remotely deployed to everybody's computers, and when they booted up, it would have to have some kind of boot script that went and grabbed that exe and deployed that vstr in to their machine just oh, to yeah. get that extension into office yeah. so we've come a long way in terms of making that that process a lot more streamlined and for instance we can disable now from that management console and add in for particular groups of people or even retract it too so all from one centralized area which is you know really powerful from an it pro perspective you know it feels like this is what sharepoint online really championed first you know, I remember and this is a few years ago now, and I'm pretty sure you and I did a show on this on Run As Radio as well. We were just talking about there was this big jump for SharePoint going into the cloud where you fundamentally changed the dev model to something that sounds an awful lot like this. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and so it, they're very similar models. So they both have this notion of you run the website externally and, and, and point to it via this mani manifest that defines how this object runs. Um, I guess the major enhancements we've done uh, where we have VSDO people listening to the show is that we know there are gaps. Uh, right. We know that there are things you can do in VSTO that you can't do in this model, whether it's because the iPad doesn't have certain notions of hooks in the UI that the Win32 version has. Sure. And so we're making decisions of UI extensibility within each of these Office clients based on the fact that we really want the same experience across all the different platforms. Um, and one of the best examples of that is this notion of the ribbon. So now across mm -hmm. Outlook, Word, PowerPoint, Excel, you can actually have your own ribbon groups, ribbon buttons to existing groups. You can have um, drop downs, ribbons, and all, all sorts of things that can run. And then the other big thing that we heard loud and loud and clear is there are so many scenarios where you want to do authentication to another surface right. within those add-ins. My favorite example to use is one called the Clause Library, which is uh, something that actually our legal team, which I love and hate at the same time dealing with at Microsoft, um, they have a contract management type add-in for Word, which essentially allows them to store common snippets of text that are legal clauses that they can inject into documents that they're building uh, that come from a central repository stored inside SharePoint. Mm. So there has to be within that task pane in Word this, this idea of logging that user into SharePoint to then make those REST calls to get back the clauses and then build that you know beautiful experience inside of a, a web page nice. that lives in in that type task pane in Word, and then the button that you click on to say insert this clause that then calls uh, Office JS to then inject it into that Word document. 
And it's just a great scenario that, you know, it's not just for legal people. That could be for sales guys building RFQ documents or for support teams building out, you know, uh, plan documents for server builds and so forth. Uh, anything that requires these common bits of content you want to keep inserting in. And we actually open sourced that project and it's been extremely popular. It's available on GitHub. And, and part of the thing we've done is we've made that auth approach of the task pane needs to pull up a pop-up for you to click in and sign in with SharePoint, but it could be Salesforce. It could be whatever thing you're authenticating to that requires that notion of a login dialog box that returns a, um, a login token you can use then to call the APIs. And so we've built a mechanism into the Office add-in model now that kind of facilitates that that notion of authentication scenarios, which is, again, another big thing that we heard from our partners that we're trying to build more sophisticated integration back to their services and then servicing all that data up in our Office clients. Well, it, it makes me think this is the scalable approach to the the mashup concept of now I could integrate these three different products and different pieces together in a in a way that if any of them rev not everything's going to break. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like in Outlook, I have a great um, add-in I use called FindTime.Microsoft.com. Um, find time is a name and essentially what it does is if I'm in an email discussion and people are like we need to jump on a call I can click and it will read my calendar based, based on reaching out to the Microsoft graph to get my availability and suggest times but wow. it's smart if I yeah. add uh, you and Carl to the two line of the email um, if it can get at your calendar information if you're within the organization it'll start saying here are the blocks of meeting times that are available that are green or Brilliant. maybe where there's some overlap so it really does minimize uh, this notion of kind of mashing up information not just from the, the email that i'm writing but also from the calendar information about all of our availability and then it sends off email that you will vote on you say yeah i prefer this time but i can also do these three times that's and then so in the brilliant yeah and then in the background uh, find time actually makes the decision for you once everyone's voted it goes okay this time works for everyone and it takes all the placeholders off your calendar and just leaves the one on there. It basically thought was the best best pick meeting time. And so, yeah, that, that notion of a mashup in Office is, you know, it's great to start seeing the graph coming together with the fact that you're living in that presentation of uh, Outlook where I unfortunately spent all of my time in marketing dealing with emails. I'm sure you guys too. Oh, we all do. And, and scheduling meetings and getting oh get-togethers God. is, oh, it's a time vampire. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like it. Time vampire. I'm going to use that. I'm going to borrow that. But um, some other great ones as well, like uh, even uh, little things like Starbucks, uh, which is going to be used in the keynote, uh, allows you to, like if I'm in a meeting invite, I can click the Starbucks button in the ribbon and you can pick a value of an amount that will be pulled from the corporate Starbucks account that can be used to go and pay for food for the meeting you have uh, Hmm. or order copies. So there's these little scenarios like that that really kind of, kind of add that improvement of productivity, the common scenarios that we all do every day, but put it directly into Outlook where we live rather than kind of go, oh, I have to remember to go to the Starbucks.com website and log in with it and, and put in the meeting time and book it. It's grabbing all that information from the context of Outlook. Just don't lose your key, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so security is definitely a concern, that's for sure. Yeah, sure is. Well, there's a whole other piece that I don't think we've got, we haven't talked to it today, but I've, I know I've done it elsewhere about how you're able to maintain your login information for all these third party services and things in a, in a repository in Azure. And then you give permission for certain AD accounts to have access, not to the keys themselves, to be able to do the login so that, you know, apps never know the logins. They just have permission to use a particular login. Yeah. And it's an interesting service that, you know, as we go into this world of, uh, you know, office development, which is, you know, I'm building inside office and hopefully I'm hosting these web applications that are the back end to these add-ins in, in Azure, but it doesn't have to be. It can be anywhere, but primarily we'd love it to be in Azure mm-hmm. and then leveraging kind of app services to then go connect into the mobile app SDKs and the API management APIs to then kind of store these secure passwords in a way that kind of be managed centrally from the Azure portal. And so it really does start to bridge and make this holistic story of all of the development story across Microsoft and not just kind of this silo of I'm an office developer and this is all I care about. And I think by kind of 
pushing office development into that web world means we can be a first party citizen alongside the rest of the Azure story as well. And I think it's good for office developers and you know SharePoint developers as well that maybe have been painted into the corner because they've been using VSTO.net, you know, for a long, long time in probably older versions of Visual Studio um, or that have been writing in ASP.NET V2 on SharePoint 2007 that now can be just kind of on whatever web stack they like and be part of that modern world. I think from a career development perspective, it it definitely changes the ball game a bit to where, uh, you know, like if you're a SharePoint developer, you're typically just a SharePoint developer. There's no career opportunities for you outside of that because you're stuck in a web stack that is dependent really on what SharePoint had and doesn't allow you to transition into other career roles as well. Well, and arguably what version of SharePoint you were using, you know, it got pretty specific for a while there. It did indeed. And I think uh, part of that as well, the flip side of that is that, it makes it very, very easy for a normal web developer that writes HTML and JavaScript or is using REST APIs or has even done Azure AD or to jump over and start building these things. Yeah. And we've, we've got a ton of hands-on labs at build this week. Uh, and then we've purposely made them 15 minutes. You just jump into, we've got these VM experiences and it's pretty amazing what you can get built in 15 minutes with a little bit of HTML and JavaScript. And the reactions of the testers that we've done this week, obviously recording a week before, people are like, wow, this stuff is really cool. It's amazing how far it's come. It's an amazing story, Jeremy, and and uh, I can't wait to see what people do with it. I think that's the exciting part is, you know, like we're building all this kind of the plumbing now that allows you to hook into Office. Uh, it, it's one of those notions that it, it's going to be great to see those killer apps. You're like, I would have never afforded that, but look how much that improves my productivity in Outlook or Word or PowerPoint Excel. And we're already seeing some of that from partners, but I think as more and more partners jump on board and start building these things, we're going to see some really amazing add-ins that are being built by, by the developers out there in the ecosystem. I agree. Jeremy Thake, thanks for being with us today. Hey, you're welcome. I appreciate getting time to jump on the show. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.